So today we begin in Psalm 140. 140. Eleven psalms left. 140 goes like this. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent's and under their lips is the venom of of asps. Selah. Guard me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have planned to trip up my feet. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me and with cords they have spread a net. Beside the way they have set snares for me. Selah. I say to the Lord, you are my God. Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy, O Lord. O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further their evil plot, or they will be exalted. Selah. As for the head of those who surround me, let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let let them be cast into fire, into miry pits, no more to rise. Let not the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute judgment for the needy. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. So as we read through this psalm, we see that the subject is dealing with people who are described as evil, violent, wicked, and sharp-tongued. Now these types of people have existed ever since sin entered into the world. They existed in David's time. This is a Davidic psalm. And these type of people exist today. And they will continue until God God ultimately sets up his eternal kingdom and judges all sinners as described in Revelation 20. But while we may understand this, it doesn't make dwelling with or living among evil, violent, wicked, and sharp-tongued people easy. It's not something, oh yeah, let's do that, that's fun. David, the writer of this psalm, had to deal with this throughout his reign, his life, both pre-reign and when he was reigning as king. And one thing that comes out of this psalm is that it is a reminder to praise God at all times, even in the middle of an evil world. Verse 3, that says, They make their tongue as sharp as serpents, and under their lips is the venom of asps, is quoted by Paul in Romans 3.13. And this is the passage where the Apostle Paul shows the sinfulness of all, leading to the well-known Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So the first stanza is the first three verses. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart, who stir up wars continually. 
They make their tongue sharp as serpents, and under their lips is the venom of asps. Now, verses the second stanza, which is verses 4 and 5, are very parallel. Deliver me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have planned to trip up my feet. The arrogant have hidden a trap for me with cords they have spread a net. So because these are are very parallel in describing those who love evil, we're going to view these together. And it's interesting that those people, these people are those are described as who plan evil. It is their intent to do evil. And then they act on that plan. And one commentator put it this way. He said, these acts were not accidents disconnected from their true nature. They planned evil and they acted on that. And the plea is to the Lord to be delivered or to be guarded from those who are evil and wicked. And we see that in verse 1 and we see that in verse 4. Deliver me and guard me. It kind of reminds you a little bit of Matthew 6.13 in the Lord's Prayer where Jesus said, lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. A very similar concept there. Spurgeon wrote this. The persecuted man turns to God in prayer. He could not do a wiser thing. Who can meet the evil man and defeat him save Jehovah himself, whose infinite goodness is more than a match for all the evil in the universe. I like that. Jehovah himself, whose infinite goodness is more than a match for all the evil in the universe. Spurgeon goes on. We cannot of ourselves baffle the craft of the enemy, but the Lord knows how to deliver his saints. Pretty well stated. How do people deal with evil without the divine perspective. If you're not a Christian, how do you deal with evil? I visited one website, it was called Hack Spirit, that identified 20 signs of an evil person. It said, here's 20 signs of an evil person. We're not going to go through all 20, but here's a couple of them. These signs range from One, they enjoy watching other people be in pain. Two, they need to control other people. This is the third, another sign they mentioned. You get a strange vibe from them. And four, they said evil people just don't get it. And I I read through all those and I'm going, what did they really say? And then the same site listed eight things on how to deal with these evil people. <clears throat> As you would expect, turning to God is not listed. Not even close. <clears throat> Their recommendations included, number one, get angry. Well, that'll work. <laughs> number two, establish boundaries. Okay. Number three, focus on solutions, not on problems. 
And one solution is to avoid spending time with the evil person. So I would not recommend that site to go help deal with evil people. Is this site supposedly by a psychologist or a counselor? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it was. No, it did not say where they're getting him from. I think the guy just thought him up in his basement one afternoon, probably after a couple of beers or something. It didn't, it didn't make a lot of sense in my mind. Now, going back to Romans 3, 12 to 18, that quotes from Psalm 40, we read this, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Kind of talks back into what we, you know, Psalm 140. The venom of asp is under their lips. That's where it's quoted. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. And then verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Most of us know Jeremiah 17, 9 that says the heart of man is deceitful and desperately sick. And then we got to remember Jesus told his disciples, his followers in Matthew 10:22, "You will be hated by all for my name's sake." Now here in Psalm 140, David's enemies tried to be crafty. Many were violent, <clears throat> and one failure <clears throat> did not keep them from trying again and again. Look back at how many attempts at David's life that Saul tried. He failed. I'll try again. He failed again. He tried again. He kept trying and trying and trying. I I did not go back and count how many. We could do that, but there was a lot. An evil person is not going to be deterred by failure. They're going to keep on doing it. And that's true of the evil in our society, all these times that we're trying to get evil out of our society, the the abortion, for example. I mean, that's evil, killing unborn children. They could lose 15 Supreme Court cases in a row. They're not going to stop trying because evil is what evil does, I guess you could say that. They are evil as it says in Romans 3, 12 to 18. And we got to remember, too, we were there. It's God who changed us. We didn't wake up one day and say, oh, I'm not going to be evil today. God changed our heart. Derek Kidner wrote about this passage. He said, what emerges clearly from this passage is the evil that can arise not, not from any pressure of circumstances, but from a love of violence, cruelty, and intrigue for their own sake. It wasn't somebody made them evil. They loved evil. They loved it. Why does the world system hate Christianity? Now, we could have a very interesting discussion on that topic. And a couple of things came to my mind. 
Number one, Christianity proclaims an objective moral truth. And this is accompanied with the position that the Bible's claims do not and cannot stand alongside alternative moral values with both being okay. Can't do that. Well, the people that don't believe the Bible, that makes them hate us. Many thinking, many are thinking, and you can see this in many of the writings, in the videos you watch. Many think that they are being intellectual in following popular views held by people like Christopher Hitchens. You know, well, he was a real smart guy. So I'm going to be real, you know, I'm going to rise above the fray and I'm going to be really intellectual. And the swagger and the bravado of those people who show a public disdain for all things Christian, for many has become a thing to be admired. I've watched a few very short clips of Hollywood elites talking about what they really think about Christianity, and it's just disgusting. But talk about swagger and bravado, they've got it. The next thing I thought of why people hate Christianity, it kind of ties into the first one, is the word tolerance. You know, the meaning of the word tolerance has taken a beating, and it now basically means something like this. You need to be tolerant of anything I hold dear and I believe in, and if you are not, then you are hateful and intolerant. Yeah, it does sound tolerant to me. You be tolerant to me, and if you're not tolerant, then you're intolerant. They don't look at themselves. One writer put it this way, and I put it in your notes. Our new God is tolerance be thy name. It ties into what Vody Bauckham said. He says there's now an 11th commandment. Did you know that? what he says there's an 11th commandment it is thou shalt be nice and he said it trumps the first 10 but that's what the non-believing world expects of Christianity we'll be tolerant of everything you want and we have to be nice about it well the Bible is very specific it proclaims an objective moral truth because the Bible claims to be authoritative, like what Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's not tolerant of every position. Then you have people like Oprah saying, it doesn't really matter what path you take, all path leads the same way. And just want to say, okay, get in your car, you live in New York, go to L.A., don't take a map, figure out every intersection you turn, just turn some way and see how you get to L.A. You're not gonna. And what Alex McFarland called, another thing, he calls it militant secularism. It presupposes that all faith claims are merely expressions of a subjective preference. The only true truths, now this is what he's saying, 
are claims that are divorced from any supernatural context and impose no moral obligations on human behavior. Now that statement is aggressively pushed in academia, by the media, by the entertainment industry. It's making its way into the legal system. And I can see it taking hold even in the business world. Fast. It's jumping in there fast. The only true truths are claims that are divorced from any supernatural context and oppose no moral obligations on human behavior except the moral obligations that they tell you you need to be holding. Where this is evil and it is all around us as we get closer and closer and closer to the last days we can expect it to gain more traction. 2 Timothy 3, 1-5 It says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And then we go on to Second Peter 3.3 3 and 3.10. says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. But then in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Yeah, it's gonna get it's it's gonna it's gonna go that direction. And from where I said I can see it going there pretty quickly, pretty fast. Before you had people maybe acting in the same way that they're acting today, but it seems like today people are, are praising their sin. They're celebrating their sin. They're, not, they're pushing it on you and saying, if you don't agree with me, you're wrong, but I want to, I want to go out and, and celebrate my sin. That's what the LGBTQ month of June is. I want to celebrate my sin. I, I've, I've asked people, should we have a month of wife cheaters and husband cheaters so they can go out and celebrate they do that? It's just as immoral. I don't think we'll see that, but... Um, they don't but, even give an excuse for it anymore. It's just praise. Yeah. Yeah. Back to Psalm 140. We went on a little trail, but we came back. How did David respond? How should we respond? In verse 1, he says, Deliver me, O Lord. In verse 4, he says, Guard me, O Lord. Our protection, our strength, is not dependent on our might. Psalm 54, 4 says, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. In the section we covered not too long ago, one of the Psalms of Ascent 
Psalm 121, verse 1, I will lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's where our help comes. Then we go to stanza three. That starts in verse six. I say to the Lord, you are my God. I give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy. O Lord, O Lord, my Lord, the strength of my salvation. You have covered my head in the day of battle. Grant not, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. And do not further their evil plot, or they will be exalted. Selah. As for the head of those who surround me, let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into fire, into miry pits no more to rise. Let not, let not the slanderer be established in the land. Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. I know the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. Now, Charles Spurgeon had a sermon that he gave where he covered five points based on those verses. And so I thought, let's, let's just go through those five points because it's pretty well done. The first is the point, point of possession. Verse 6, you are my God. The fact that we can appeal to God in the first place is that he is our God. And for the believer, he is our Father. The truth in Romans 8, 14 to 16 cannot be underappreciated. Romans 8, 14 to 16 says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We are God's possession. The next thing that Spurgeon put out is petition. Like a lot of people who gave sermons then and all the way really up to a few years ago, you know, they have to start every every word with the a word that starts with the same alphabet letter. Alliteration. What's that? Alliteration. Alliteration, yes. Sometimes they really stretch, but he didn't do much here. This is called petition in verse 6. Give ear to the voice of my pleas for mercy. One point to understand is mercy is our only hope. We can never approach God thinking we deserve his kindness or his grace, or anything good from him. Remember what the tax collector prayed in Luke 18.13, where we read, But the tax collector, standing afar off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus' response to that prayer was in the next verse, in verse 14 of Luke 18. It says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
Now, humbling yourself and not exalting yourself is something that's foreign to our world. It's just the opposite. We want to exalt ourselves. We hear a lot of quotes from multiple sources that we are good and deserving. Just a couple of quotes on the subject, and I did not go to Joel Osteen's book, which is the whole book. Okay? You've all heard of Nelson Mandela. He, he, stated, he stated this, Man's goodness is a flame that can be hidden but never extinguished. Nope. You've all heard of this person, Barbara Walters. It would be nice to feel that we are a better world, a world of more compassion, a world of more humanity, and to believe in the basic goodness of man. Oops. It would be nice to believe that, but you can't, or it would be nice to feel, but we're not. And then someone that I've never read his books or anything, but we've all heard of him, Confucius. He said this, True goodness springs from a man's own heart. All men are born good. <laughs> Did he ever have kids? <laughs> don't confuse, don't mess up my story with the facts. I want to believe man is good. And we see it all over today. All over today. You say something? It's a memorial right down by Ninth Oh, and yeah, the Anne Frank Memorial. Yeah, she said in, Yeah, in spite of everything I've seen, I still believe that all men are basically good. Now she missed. But we cannot come to God thinking that we're good. That ain't going to work. Remember what the sinner did. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. <clears throat> the next thing we see in verse 7 of this section is the preservation says, my Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. And then verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 talk a little bit about that preservation of God. Where David asked thee, ask in these verses that God, in verse 8, grant not the desires of the wicked. Because, you know, that's, again, being preserved by God. Verse 9, let the mischief of their lips overwhelm them. Verse 10, let them be cast down, no more to rise. And verse 11, let not the slanderer be established in the land. This, these are things that God does to preserve. And then in verse 12, we have protection. Says the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute judgment for the needy. You know, the only source of judgment will come from the only righteous judge, and that is God Himself. Revelation 19, 1 to 2, and verse 11 
should give us great hope and comfort. Verse 1 says, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. I love that line. His judgments are true and just. If anyone comes to you and says, Well, how about the person in wherever in the world who's never heard the name of Christ? How can God send that person to hell? Just take them right here. God's judgments are true and just. God will never unjustly deal with anybody. Don't worry about them. Worry about you. And then verse 11. And then I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. We'll get to see that stuff. That's pretty cool. We can rest in the promise of this promise from God. Regardless of the evil that appears to be in control. The final chapter has yet to be played out. But the day is coming when it will be. And the Lord will come in righteousness and judgment. And then because of all this, the last thing in this section is praise in verse 13. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name and the upright shall dwell in your presence. Boyce points out that the climax of this psalm is the praise of the Lord. David and we believers as well can praise God even through the evil that surrounds us. It's not going to go away tomorrow afternoon, but we can praise God through it. Why? We look to God for protection and have a confident future that God will and will judge righteously and ultimately the righteous, those who are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, will dwell in his presence. Now that's pretty incredible. That quickly is Psalm 140. Now we get to go to Psalm 141. Psalm 141 starts out like this. O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, grant ear to my voice when I call to you, to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. The thrust of this psalm is plain. It's a prayer against insincerity and compromise. It's a plea for survival under the savage attacks which such an attitude has invited. So this is a focus on prayer. Now prayer is one thing in most every believer's life, and that would be everyone in this room, I would assume, that needs constant attention and focus. There is a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to prayer, and I mean a lot, especially outside of true believers. Just yesterday, a person I know, I used to work with, a few years ago I put follower on Facebook, 
never posted anything on her, and haven't talked to her in about 15 years. She put this posting on Facebook, and this is a, kind of a long posting, but this is the bulk of it, talking about prayer. Everyone needs a prayer, a prayer for me. I am getting an online prayer circle going. It can't hurt. I believe that when someone asks you to pray for them, you pray because prayers are free and should be given wholeheartedly. Let's pray for each other today because prayers are needed right now. I ask whoever you might be to kindly post this status for one hour to whisper a prayer for all of those who have family problems, health struggles, job issues, or worries of any kind and just need to know that someone cares. Notice there's no attention given to God, the only person that can do anything, the only one who can hear our prayers, the only one who has an answer to our prayers. But you see this all the time. Our prayers are with you. Well, what's that mean? Prayer is something that would be an extremely worthwhile study. But it won't be a short one. You can pass these around and get an idea. I thought, I wanted to study prayer a few years ago. So I saw this thing, an exposition on prayer. So I ordered the book. There it is. That was one book. And you can pass these around. I think there's, well, that's page 1300 there. Which one's the New Testament? Oh, yeah. This is, it totals uh, 2,700 pages. Okay? But read it before we leave. Read it before you leave. You can pass those around and look at that a little bit. It was written by Dr. Jim Roscup. And then there's this other book. I've read this one. It's called The God Who Hears. And what Roscup does is he goes through every passage in the Bible that talks about prayer and then he comments on it. So if you find a passage on prayer, you go to Psalm Psalm 141 to be in there. You know, but <clears throat> prayer is something that we need to improve on. I need to improve on it. <laughs> One thing that David, the human author of Psalm 141, st- understood very clearly was that he needed the Lord. He knew that he should not and could not rely on his own strength and power, and he knew, and if he knew this, David had quite a bit of strength and power. Probably a whole lot more than I have. If he knew that, then we should know that same thing. So this starts out, this psalm starts out with the invocation. O Lord, I call upon you. Hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you in the lifting of my hands as the evening sacrifice. It's interesting, Boyce was commenting about this and he made this comment, and it's a, good, it's a good quote, and I put some of it in your notes. May I suggest that the most important moments in our prayer or worship times are before we even start. This is because in these moments of preparation, we settle our thoughts 
and remind ourselves that we are actually coming into the presence of Almighty God. Our prayer times are when we meet with God. So we must be conscious that we are actually meeting with Him. Can that get out of kilter? Oh, yeah. I remember talking to one person years ago. She said, oh, yeah, I just sent a prayer dart up to heaven. You know? And and I know what she was saying. But it's easy to get it out of kilter. To get things, you know, not really understand who we're talking to. Not, not think about who we're talking to. We understand it. It was just after Boyce wrote that quote, he quoted uh, R.A. Torrey from his book, and I have not read this book, The Power of Prayer and the Prayer of Power. I thought this was a very interesting um, snippet from his life. He says, I was taught to pray so early in life that I have not the slightest recollection of who taught me to pray. Prayer was largely a matter of form. There was little real thought of God, no real approach to God. And even after I was converted, yes, even after I had entered into the ministry, prayer was largely a matter of form. But the day came when I realized what real prayer meant. I realized that prayer was having an audience with God. From that time on, prayer has not been merely a duty, but a privilege. That's what R.A. Tory said. And in verse 2, David asked that his prayer be counted as incense before the Lord. And that reminds me of Revelation 5.8. And, and, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. Now, I don't know how all that works. Yes? No, you hear people talk about praying constantly. Uh, if you have done something or said something or whatever, you pray and ask for forgiveness right there on the spot. And I'm sitting here thinking, uh, again, Well, what do you think? Um, we need to we need to have a, a, an attitude of prayer all the time. Yes. I think um, I mean this is all good. Step one, uh, God says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. Um, just flippant prayer when you're in your mind hanging on to sin or whatever you're basically dirty you're in carnality and God doesn't want to hear from a, a dirty mind and that's why he has said make yourself clean before you come to me in prayer um, but I think we get so used to you know we just sit down and and pray or even give grace at the table but 
What are you thinking? Just what's really, what have you just been through? What have you just cussed your neighbor out, you know, <laughs> under your breath or whatever? But God says, no, that's not going to get it. You, you've got to get right with me. Then you come before me and pray. It's, it's, I think we tend to be pretty flippant. On, oh, I, I, yeah, we do. But I think confession is a huge thing before we, well, you heard me before, but, um, um, but yeah, I, 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 uh, I thought you might bring that up, so I was wondering. <laughs> but, you know, before we do lots of things, prayer especially, I think, you know, you're going before the, the perfectly righteous God, uh, and you're going to walk in there with your dirty clothes on? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. And I think a lot of prayers that people offer up don't go any higher than the ceiling. They don't. So I think step one is if we were really, you know, doing things right, we can get right with the Lord before we come before Him in prayer. The other thing we would probably do, and this, I mean, all of us, all of us can improve and should improve here. The more we realize what prayer is and what it means, it should motivate motivate us to do it more. You know. I don't know. I don't know if you're like me. Sometimes my mind wanders. I've had it wander in prayer, and I don't like that, but it does. You know, I'm one of those. Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes I sit down to study my 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 notes here. I mean, my for 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 the class, and I can tell that my mind is. I'm going too many places too fast. I got to slow it down. You know, so I can focus and study on and concentrate. And we need to do that when it comes to prayer. And we need to make sure we're not sitting in sin. And I don't think David's prayers after his thing with Bathsheba did a whole lot of good <laughs> until he repented when Nathan came to him. Yes? The, the best mnemonic that I've heard of, and it speaks to what which is said, is the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. The A stands for adoration, the C for confession, T for thanksgiving, and then S for supplication. So the first three parts of that prayer mnemonic are directed toward God, his existence, his greatness, his dominion over you and your life, your worshiping him as, as a source of all truth before you ever get to little old me and my needs and wants. And so that's, I, I, found, I found it useful to, okay, which letter was I on? Oh yeah, I was still on adoration when I should have, and I went to supplication right away. No, I, I need to give thanks for everything that was ever done to me in goodness that I did not deserve, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think the Lord's Prayer follows that. It does. You know, starts out. Oh, Father heaven, oh, or Father who art in heaven, oh, help me through this. No. <laughs> Hallowed be your name. If your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Okay. Yeah, it's, this is, it would probably be worthwhile, and I wouldn't be the best guy to teach it, I'm sure, is to have a, have a class devoted to prayer for three months. And then, how would the class do it? <laughs> you know. 
something to put on our to-do list. Let's go on, or we'll never get through with this. I thought we might get a little off-subject on here, but that's fine. I mean, we're not off-subject. We're off-script. That's better. The second stanza in Psalm 141 is the prayer itself, starting with part 1 in verse 3 and 4. It says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity. Let me not eat of their delicacies. So the requests of David in verses 3 and 4 are requests that probably every one of us can echo. First, help me with my words, with what I say. Psalm 19.14, David wrote, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. And then there's Proverbs 13.3. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. And then there's Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those in here, to, to, to those who hear. It's easy to sin with our words. And David says, let my words honor you. Set a guard over my mouth. And there's times that everyone here, once it gets out, we'd like to go and grab it and throw it back in. Let's ask God to set guard over my mouth. And then he says, keep my heart from evil. Do not let my heart incline to any evil. Keep my heart from from evil and the actions that would accompany that attitude. We've probably read Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now this prayer of David's, Keep my heart, do not let my heart incline to any evil. It would be good for all of us to entertain that same thought. We need God's help. We need the Holy Spirit's help not to let our hearts incline to evil. And then tied in with the words in the heart are deeds. The second half of verse 4. Not to busy myself or ourselves with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity. It's so easy to get in the company of people who would lead us down the wrong path. They can make it appear so correct, so unevil-like. And even so-called Christians could lead us down that path. Most don't wake up and say, consciously, I think I'm going to go out and do some evil today. Sounds good. Good plan. They don't. A few do, but most don't. Yes? Well, despite the urging of the men who were with him, David did not kill Saul. Not once, but twice. Right. Because it was the Lord's anointing. Right. It's so easy to follow you know, other people's logic. But a verse that all of us probably know by heart, 
Psalm 23, 3b. Lead me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We need the Lord to lead us and to think that we can keep on the path of righteousness by our own self, we're wrong. We can't. We are horribly wrong. Lead me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Remember back to the Lord's Prayer that we just brought up a little bit ago in Matthew 6, verse 13. It says, Lead us not, to tempt, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the reason that we need to be led in the paths of righteousness for him for his name's sake is because we can't do it ourselves. Then the second half of the prayer starts in verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. I'm going to stop right there. And this is hard for me. Viewing rebuke or correction as a kindness is difficult for most people. But when this comes from one who is a righteous man, one who is not out for evil gain, it is like oil for my head. Now, what oil for my head represents is there is an ancient custom of hospitality and respect to show esteem for dinner guests was to anoint the invitee's head with oil, and oil was mixed with a fragrant perfume to refresh and to soothe. So how we have here, let a righteous man strike me, it is a kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Now I need to read that verse, you know, a hundred times. You know, and we all need to do that because that is hard. That is hard to do. It's when theory and reality kind of clash. Oh yeah, I, I believe that. Oh, well, this guy just came in here and just pounded me. I know I needed it, but I don't want to think I need it. That happens a lot. Going on. The last half of verse 7. The subject returns back to David's prayer and against those who perform evil deeds. Yet my prayers continually against their evil deeds when their judges are thrown over the cliff. Then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. So this returns back to David's prayer against those who perform evil deeds. And when they are destroyed, hearing that this has occurred will be pleasant news. It's Think of the news of the those in the nation in, in Israel. Think of the news, how they took that news when they heard that Jezebel was finally dead in Second Kings 9. They were probably going, yeah, you know, an evil person is gone. God has finally dealt with her. The same word for thrown over the cliff in verse 6 
was used in 2 Kings 9.33 when Jezebel was thrown over the wall of the city. As far as verse 7 is concerned, there are different descriptions of what this means. As we saw with the death of Jezebel, it was burial was very important for the Jewish people. It was a major thing, a major thing not to be buried. And if you remember, Jezebel wasn't because the wolves came and destroyed what was left of her. David Guzik wrote this, Perhaps David used this word picture to describe how ruined he felt and his righteous companions were at the deeds of the wicked. Those so ruined could only cry out to God for help, which is what we see in the next line, verses 8 to 10. Verse 8 says, But my eyes are toward you, O Lord my God, when you... In you I seek refuge. Leaves, leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass safely. Regardless of our circumstances, what lies close to us, what lies ahead, these are great verses to go to the Lord with. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord, for in you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. We need to keep our focus. We need to keep our eyes on the Lord. Yeah, that's a nice sentiment, but how do we do that? Well, a couple ideas. Number one, we talked about a little bit, prayer. Ask God for the things like David was asking. Right here in this in this psalm. Second thing, read God's word and let that word dwell in you. As we've said many times, as we read how many, as we read um, uh, polls of how often people read their Bible that call themselves Christian, it's disgusting. Let let us read God's word and let the word dwell in us. And then the third thing, have our actions reflect what we've learned through prayer and the guidance and the power of the Spirit of God. Pray, read, and then do. James 5.16 talks about prayer. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Read God's word. We can go to Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Our heart needs to be We need to be able to discern our thoughts and intentions. How do we do that? The Word of God will do that. And then actions. Romans 12, 1 and 2. First half of verse 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. 
Psalm 41 has a lot to teach us. And I didn't learn it all in the little study I did for it. It's something that we can continually go and learn. Let's pray.